Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16 in the Old Testament. The message today is continuing in our series, Great Stories from God's Word, with a message entitled, The Lord Sees the Heart. And we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 16 in the first 13 verses. You've no doubt heard the phrase, you can't judge a book by its cover. If you're looking for a book to read and you're looking at a number of books on the shelf, perhaps in the bookstore, even if you're browsing online, the cover will often jump out to you before the content of the book. And many people will choose a book simply based off of the cover and maybe what's written on the back in the brief description and so forth, and you'll decide whether or not it's for you. The phrase goes all the way back at least to the mid-19th century when there was a newspaper that had the saying in it, don't judge a book by its cover, see a man by his cloth, as there's often a good deal of solid worth and superior skill underneath. Sometimes you'll get a book that has a really nice cover and it ends up that there's not much content within that's worthwhile. The same can happen spiritually Uh, People cannot and should not be judged by their cover or by their outward appearance, yet we are in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with the outward appearance, whether it be the physical or the financial means or an appearance of intellectual aptitude, whatever it is, we are obsessed with what we think we see on the outside. I would like to tell you that the church is immune to such a thing. But that would not be true. Many have got, gotten caught up in the celebrity culture of prominent preachers and prominent platform people. Just this past week, James McDonald, who was the pastor of the Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago, a megachurch with some thirteen to 15,000 people, was fired. Now, James McDonald is well known for his speaking ability, his Walk in the Word program, has been heard worldwide for a long time. He is an incredibly gifted speaker, and yet he was fired. The reason he was fired was related to financial issues and deception and spiritual abuse within the church, and then ultimately some vulgar comments that he made that were recorded by a radio personality there in Chicago, reminding us that we have to be careful not just to look on what we see on the outside, Because what's in the heart is what's most important, and ultimately what's in the heart will come to the surface. I'll also say at this point, we should take absolutely no joy in the fall of a prominent person or a person who is not as well-known. Instead, we should be broken and know that we have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy And if it were not for the grace of God, we could find ourselves in similar circumstances. Tales like this are cautionary tales of how Satan can wreak havoc on people's lives and ministries for the Lord and do damage to the kingdom and do damage to people's understanding of what the faith is all about. Our scripture today demonstrates how the Lord sees the heart. And what's important to the Lord is often not what's most important to people. And what the Lord sees is not what people at first see. The backdrop of the story is that Saul, the first king of Israel, 
proved to be a great failure. For a while, it seemed like things were going in the right direction. He was doing what God wanted him to do. But ultimately, the problem was he failed to obey the Lord completely. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 11. And he says, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel told Saul, the Lord anointed you king over Israel and sent you on a mission to destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the enemies. But rather than completely destroying the enemies, Saul only went part way. And because of that, the judgment of God fell. And the prophet judge Samuel went after that and hacked Agag to pieces because of the judgment of God in a horrific act of judgment that showed the people just how serious God was about his will and how serious God was about protecting his people. And then we pick up reading in 1 Samuel 16. What I want to do is read this section by section, tell the story, and then circle back and give some idea to us of what our hearts should look like before the Lord. So we begin reading here in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. God came to Samuel. Samuel obeyed even though he at first objected. He said, how am I going to do this? Because Saul's going to know it. He's still the king and the king has power over my life. But in that moment, Samuel had to make a decision. He had to decide if he was going to have a fear of man or a fear of God. And he chose rightly because his fear was of God and he did what God told him to do. Now, years before, Israel had rejected the Lord as their king and they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to have a human king for themselves. They wanted to be like the peoples who were surrounding them. So God gave them the human king, Saul, but God was still on the throne. They had the choice of recognizing the rule of God, obeying what God said to do, or doing what they wanted to do, what pleased them, and suffer the consequences. And I'd say to you today that the same choice lies before us. We can either decide to obey God and do what he's told us to do, or we can decide to please ourselves and do what we want to do and suffer the consequences. Samuel was to fill his horn of oil and he was to go to the house of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And Jesse was the family line of Ruth and Boaz. And God had provided for himself a king among his sons. So Samuel did as the Lord told him to do, and he went. Beginning in verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord directed, and he went to Bethlehem. Then the elders of the town, they met him, they trembled, and they asked, do you come in peace? In peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, they had a good reason to wonder if Samuel had come in peace. They no doubt had heard 
what had happened as a result of Saul not doing what Saul was supposed to do, and then Samuel doing what God told him to do. And they wondered, now that this powerful man has come into our midst, what's going to happen to us? Are you coming in peace? He says, yes, I'm coming in peace. He came to the home of the area of Ruth and Boaz. It was a hilly grain-growing region with many small fields carved into the hillsides, and there he tells them the purpose for which he's come. Samuel instructed them to come with him, and he had come for the purpose of a sacrifice. They were to consecrate themselves and to prepare themselves so they could participate. Now, there's an interesting point here because a sacrifice that was given for the atonement of sin was to be burnt up completely on the altar of God. But a sacrifice that was given for another point of consecration, whether it be a peace offering or a fellowship offering or a consecration offering, uh, part of it was consumed on the altar, and then the rest of it could be consumed in what amounted to a ceremonial meal. And that was the purpose for which Samuel had come uh, by the will of the Lord. Now verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Now watch this. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. This is going to be the primary part of our focus as we come back to how this applies to today. That what we see is not what God sees, but what God sees is always everything. Jesse called Abinadab in verse 8 and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. So we have this scene where Jesse brings his sons. David sees the one and thinks, well, maybe he's kingly material. He looks handsome. He, he looks like he's got some leadership material. Maybe he's the one. And the Lord said, no, he's not the one. So Jesse brings the sons one by one. And the Lord says to Samuel, these aren't the ones. And the Lord instructs him about what he looks at in verse 7. Now, what's interesting here is that when Israel needed a king, or when they asked for a king, the one that the Lord chose was not only handsome, but he was also a head taller than the other men in Israel. When he chose Saul, he was a striking leader. He was tall, and he was prominent, and he, he looked like he fit the part of what he was being called to do. And for a time, Saul was successful, but the time quickly came when his reign was a total disaster. So the point here is that whether a person is tall and handsome or beautiful and striking 
or short and dumpy and not particularly attractive, that's not the point. That's not the ultimate issue. What is the ultimate issue is what's in the heart. So a person could also have the outward appearance that is attractive to other people that is prominent and be useful to God. Or they could be very, very not attractive or seem like they're one who would fit the part. But ultimately what matters is what is God doing in that person's life and is the power of God upon them. So here's old Samuel. He makes the same mistake of judging the appearance. It was the same mistake that Israel had made. And even though Saul looked the part, he didn't have the heart of the king that God's people should have. It didn't matter how good he looked because God ultimately rejected him. Uh, Bill Blakely said, the world is full of idolatries, but I question if any idolatry has been more extensively practiced than the idolatry of the outward appearance. Jesse presented these sons, and ultimately Samuel says, is that all you got? He's thinking, I've come for a purpose. I've come with my horn of oil. It's full. I'm ready. We're, we're going we're gonna to anoint this next king. And, and yet, none of these are the one. Is this all you got? And he says, well, there is the youngest. The youngest is out tending the sheep. And the job of a shepherd, of course, was a servant's job. We might think from this and draw the conclusion that Jesse's family was not particularly wealthy because if they had been particularly wealthy, they would have had servants caring for their sheep, but he's got his son doing that. And it was by the will of God because David was in a time of preparation for what God was about to have him do. He spent a lot of time considering God's creation while he was out there caring for the sheep. He wrote the extensive part of the Psalms as we have them, which would be the worship book of Israel. They're full of the imagery of God's power in creation and God's stability as the one who is sovereign over all and God's love for his people and God's concern for us in our time of distress. And it would be David who would write Psalm 23 and he would sing about the Lord as his shepherd. You see, he was a young boy who had learned to trust God in the midst of danger and he had the lions and the bears and the wolves to contend with as he protected the sheep. And his days caring for those sheep were not wasted time. They were times of preparation. So watch this. We might be drawn to think that someone is going to be especially useful to God because they have a striking physical appearance. They're attractive to the eyes. They check off all the worldly boxes of success. They might have the right education. They might have had some of the right experience. They might be able to present themselves well in public, and it looks like to us that they're really going to be useful to God. And it might just be that God has somebody off somewhere far away in an obscure place in an unlikely circumstance, tending the sheep, and nobody knows that they're there, but God is preparing them to do something great for him. And here's why God does that. God specializes in using the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. He specializes in taking the weak and showing his strength. He specializes in using what seems contrary to what the world would chase after in doing some of his greatest work. So when Samuel hears that there's another son, he says, send for him. We won't eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him and 
Ironically, the scripture says that he had beautiful eyes and he had a healthy, handsome appearance. Now, I like the old translation where it says that he had a, a ruddy appearance. I'm kind of partial to that for some reason or the other. But here's this man who's chosen and he's got a nice appearance. He's just the young one. He's the unlikely one. He's the one that's out caring for the sheep. And the Lord says, anoint him for he is the one. Samuel took the oil, and in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him powerfully on David from that day forward. Now, David would never lose the heart of a shepherd. Psalm 78 and verse 70 says, He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And then listen to what it says about David. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Isn't it interesting, the order of that? That God's word first mentions the integrity of the heart before it mentions the skillfulness of his hands. And is it not that we are often drawn to those that we think have the most skillful hands? They seem to be the most uh, impressive, the most professional possibility, the most upside as far as the world has it. And sometimes we're not even concerned about the integrity of their heart, but God first looks at the integrity of the heart because it doesn't matter how skillful your hands are. If your heart does not have integrity before him, you will not be useful to God. And here was David, a man, who was getting, was a man who was getting ready to be used greatly by God. And the Bible tells us that the Lord sees the heart. Now, the human heart, uh, physically speaking, is not particularly impressive, not in terms of its appearance, but it is impressive in terms of what it does. Our hearts beat, on average, some 100,000 times a day depend on length of life some two and a half billion times on average in our lifetime. And without our heart being healthy, our bodies don't function properly as they should. And the comparison that is made in the scriptures of the significance of the heart and the heart in the Bible is a metaphor for inner spiritual life. And the Bible mentions the issue of the heart some 1,000 times. Jesus himself spoke extensively about the heart. And the word that Jesus used and the idea that Jesus spoke of about the heart is speaking of the, the seat of who we are. Our emotions, our intellect, our will, the heart is the center of all of that. And God wants you to have a healthy spiritual heart so that your life is useful to him and you can bring glory to him and you can experience the blessings that he intends for you to experience. Proverbs 27 and verse 19 says, As the water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the person. So I want to ask and answer this question in the next few minutes that we have together. What kind of heart does God desire for us to have? What kind of heart does God desire for us to have? First, God desires for us to have a heart of purity. God desires for us to have a heart of purity. Proverbs 4 in verse 23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. It is the wellspring of life. Guarding your heart is of supreme importance to God. 
And the idea that's used in the scripture is that of a watchman being set over your heart. So we would think about a, a city who had a watchman set over the city. The watchman's there to guard the city, to protect the city, to fend off any opposition that could come in, to protect the people from danger. And in the same way, we're to guard our heart because there are many enemies that would come against us. That There are many pitfalls that we can fall prey to. And we are to filter our lives through the lens of the Scripture, which is the sword of the Spirit. And this is the truth of God's Word that is illuminated to us by the Spirit of God Himself. And the Word of God sets watch over our lives. And the Word of God forms what we might call a a watchman over our lives. And as we filter our decisions of life and we filter uh, the obstacles that come before us and we think about all the experiences that we have, God's Word is going to place a guard over our hearts in that way. Now David, the one God instructed Samuel to anoint as king over Israel, is described twice as a man after God's own heart. Now if you know your Bible, somebody's already thinking, how's he talking here about a heart of purity? He's talking about David, and David sinned egregiously against God. Just hold on, I'm going to get there in a moment. But what I want to show you are some things from David's life that reveal to us what kind of heart he had and why we could say that he was a man after God's own heart with a heart of purity even though he did something that was very destructive and sinful before the Lord. First of all, David did what God wanted him to do. So the scripture says that he obeyed the commandments of the Lord. So first off, you got to show up and you got to want to do what God wants you to do And you're going to do it from a heart of purity. And in doing so, David believed in the power of God. This was the young shepherd boy who defended the sheep. This was the young man who killed the giant Goliath, believing that the Lord would deliver him. He believed in the power of God. And in our Christian life, we've got to get to the place where we believe that God wants us to live pure lives and that by the power of God that can happen because we cannot do it on our own. This is impossible for us to do. When the Bible says, be holy as I am holy, God is speaking to us of what he expects and requires out of us as his children. That is humanly impossible. It is only possible because we have the righteousness of Jesus. So anytime that we begin to speak about purity, we're talking about purity that's been given to us through the righteousness of our Savior. And David worshiped God. He said in Psalm 26 and verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. You see, David was a man who loved the law of God. He delighted in the Lord's direction, in the Lord's law for his life. And then David did sin, seriously sinned against the Lord with Bathsheba. I'll not recount the whole story. You can go back and read it for yourself later on in 2 Samuel chapter 11. His actions included adultery, lying, murder. But when it came down to it, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. He wrote Psalm 51, that great psalm of repentance. In Psalm 51 and verse 10, he said, God 
Create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Aren't you thankful that God is a gracious and merciful God? Aren't you thankful that we can come to God in genuine repentance, trusting in Him and Him only, recognizing that it's not our righteousness that gives us standing before God, it's the righteousness of His Son who lived and died and now lives again? That it's God giving to us what we could not produce on our own? So when I say to you that God is expecting from you a heart of purity, I'm saying to you that God is not expecting you to try harder. God is expecting you to surrender to him so that he can give you the heart that he wants you to have. And we can ask ourselves some questions to see whether or not we're guarding our hearts and whether or not we have hearts of purity. We ought to ask ourselves, what do I believe about God and the world and myself? Is what I believe consistent with who God is and the reality of the world that I live in and what God has said? Is there sin in my life that is causing me to not be useful to God? Is there some type of sin in my life that is quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit and that is keeping me from having a heart of purity? Where am I finding joy and fulfillment? What do we dwell on? What's important to us? What is significant to us? What are our life priorities? All of those things will tell us whether or not our hearts are focused on God and He's producing in us a life of purity that comes from a heart of purity. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now what is implied in that verse is that those who are not pure in heart will not see God. And this is why, as I said, it is essential that we understand that our purity comes from the righteousness of Jesus. This is not try hard or do better. This is understanding what God has done for you through his son. And to be pure means to be blameless. It means to be unstained from guilt. It means to have right standing before God. It means to have a singleness of heart to the Lord. And this should be at least in part our prayer. Bless us, God, so that we can have a pure heart because we want to see you. We don't want to just know about you. God, we don't want to just know you as a theory. God, we don't want to just know some ideas about you. God, we don't want to just know what other people know about you. We want to know who you are as you have revealed yourself to us through your word and then ultimately through your son. God, we want to know you, so give us pure hearts that come from Jesus so that we can see you. And someday live eternally in your presence according to your righteousness. And then God desires, secondly, for us to have a heart of love. A heart of love. Now Jesus was challenged by someone asking him the question about what they need to do to inherit eternal life and what the most important commandments were. And Jesus said, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37 to 39. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A heart of love. And you know what? Just like purity on our own is impossible. To love God with our entire being and to love our neighbor as ourselves is humanly impossible. 
But with God, all things are possible because God is love and we love because God first loved us. Do you understand that out of the the wellspring of our lives, it's, it's God's righteousness that's coming up through us. It's God's love that is being manifested in our lives. And what God does for us is he gives us, in effect, a spiritual heart transplant when we get saved. I love the passage of Scripture uh, back in Ezekiel where God says to his people, Israel, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to observe my laws. Now, obviously, God was addressing the Israelites. He was speaking of his promise to one day restore them to a right relationship with him and also restore them to the land that he had promised. But the greater promise there is that God promises to remove from us a stony, selfish heart and to give us a new heart. It's the idea of, of, of living the exchanged life. It's what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 19 and 20. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the idea that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. Do you understand the miracle that takes place through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that when we are born again, God gives us the heart of Jesus? Yes, we still reside in the flesh. Yes, we still have freedom to choose to obey or to disobey God. But now we're being transformed into his image with an ever-increasing glory that is from the Lord. And this should be our prayer, at least in part. God, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to show us what love is. Help us to love you with our whole heart and help us to love others as we love ourselves. A life of purity, a heart of purity, a heart of love. And then third and last, God desires for us to have a heart of faithfulness, a heart of faithfulness. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. This is God's word to us. To trust in the Lord with all your heart is to have complete confidence in him. It's the idea of, of leaning with the, with the whole body. It's the, it's the concept of putting all of your weight, all of your faith, all of your hope, all of your confidence in God. And it's contrasted with the idea of not relying on your own understanding. What is our own understanding? It's the mental process that we undergo to analyze a problem, to break it down into smaller parts, and then to make a decision. And here's the choice before us. And if you don't get anything else here, I want you to really hear this because it's so important in the practical application of what this means to us. You can live your life based on feelings, intellect, impulses, and intuition, or you can live your life anchored in God 
with a heart of faithfulness. You've heard the phrase, follow your heart. A lot of times people say that to young people. Follow your heart. Whatever you do in life, follow your heart. I want you to know that is the absolute worst advice that a human being could ever be given. And the reason that it's the worst advice that a human being could ever be given is because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. That's what Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 and 10 says. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, Lord, the Lord, examine the mind and I test the heart to give to each according to his way and according to what his actions deserve. So if you're following after your own impulses and your own intuition and your own intellect, you could end up in a far different place than what God would want you to end up. And I have no background with aviation, but it's fascinating, and it's my understanding. Some of you might have had some background. There might be a pilot or two among us. It's my understanding that there are two basic ratings for pilots, and then it grows beyond that based on what type of aircraft they're flying and what type of experience they have to have and whether it's commercial or military and all that. But basically, there's first of all a visual flight rating. And that visual flight rating basically means you're flying by sight. And that's an oversimplified version, but that's basically what it means. The problem is, if you bank that plane into a bunch of clouds, or you get into a storm that you weren't anticipating, or darkness falls, and all you've got is a visual flight rating by some chance, you could very well end up crashing the plane. And they say that it's possible even for it to seem like you're flying in the right direction and actually be flying completely the wrong way. They call it flying by the seat of your pants. It's dangerous. But then there's the instrument-rated pilot. And that instrument-rated pilot is taught to trust the instruments. Trust what you see in front of you regardless of what you might feel like. And there is a wonderful application of this to the spiritual life because if we are trusting in the instrument of our own selves and we're flying by the seat of our pants and we're chasing after what our heart wants apart from God, we can end up in a very destructive place. But if we're following after the instrument of the Word of God and empowered by the Spirit of God, the promise in Proverbs 3 is that God will guide you on the right paths, meaning that he will make your way straight when he needs to. He will remove obstacles if they need to be removed. He will redirect you on a detour if your life needs to go on a detour. He will guard you around what may may seem like a dead end. But here's the beauty of this. When we do things God's way and we surrender to him, his desires become our desires. So while that admonition to follow after your heart is a poor recommendation of earthly wisdom that's not wisdom at all, it's not as though God is trying to steal the joy from your life. That's what young people often think, and it's not only young people that fall into that trap, but we think, well, if if I don't do this, then I'm going to miss out on that. Is that not what happened in the garden to begin with? God had given them everything they could possibly need. He walked with them in the cool of the day. 
He provided for them everything they could possibly think of, but there was just one thing that they weren't to do. And that was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did the devil do? He convinced them they were missing out. But if you do things God's way, and you have a heart of faithfulness, your desires, your heart will line up with his. Proverbs 37 and verse 3 and following says, Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord. And watch this. He will give you your heart's desires. He will provide for you the desires of your heart. After the temple was built by Solomon, who followed his father, David, and they dedicated it, Solomon prayed a prayer, a public prayer of dedication to the Lord. And it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8. And he says at the end of that prayer, let your heart be completely devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his ordinances and to keep his commands as it is today. This should be, at least in part, our prayer. Lord, may our hearts be fully devoted to you and may our lives reflect faithfulness that honors and glorifies your name. Just like you can't have purity on your own, you can't have love on your own as God has it, you also can't have faithfulness on your own. All the glory goes back to God because he's the one who rescued you. He's the one who empowers you. He's the one who directs you. He's the one who blesses the good decisions that you make. And he's the one that's going to bring you home safely to be with him someday. So ask this question in closing. When the Lord looks at your heart, what does he see? When the Lord looks at your heart, what does he see? Does he see a heart? Does a heart of faith? Does believing in Jesus and Jesus only for salvation? If not today, you need a spiritual heart transplant. You need to be forgiven of your sins. You need to know Jesus as your Savior. You're not here by accident. You're here with a purpose. And today your life could change forever. But maybe he does see a heart there that's a heart of faith. Does he also so see a heart that is consistent with who he is? It's so easy to get distracted by the world and distracted by our own flesh and distracted by boredom and all sorts of things. Get our eyes off of the Lord. Maybe today you just need to refocus and say, Lord, I know what you see when you see my heart, and it's not where it needs to be. Do you know most people are just a prayer of repentance away from true life change? A prayer of repentance. Getting back on the right path so that you can honor God. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, you know the heart of every person here today. We can see the outside. God, there are many people here today who, when we see the outside and it looks like it's honoring you, it, it's consistent, God, with who they are. They love you. They, they live their lives for you. And I praise God for your servants.
who give a good witness and testimony to Jesus. May that be the character of our lives. There may be some people here today, though, Lord, that, that they look like things are okay and they're not. They need to know the Lord. They need salvation. I pray if there would even be one here today who would admit that need and come under conviction and believe in Jesus, repenting of their sins and believing in Him for eternal life. I pray, Lord, that, that you would bring them to that point of, of faith and that we would be able to rejoice with the angels in heaven. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ and God, you know all the challenges and the things that we face and how we sometimes lose focus. Help us to be a people that are focused. Help us to be a people who honor you and who live lives that are consistent. And may we do it all for your glory because it all comes from your good hand. We'll give this time of close and response over to you now, Lord. Use it as you see fit. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.